Bibles. Instead of 1 Timothy, we are going to take a, a little bit of a turn and we're going to turn to the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand and uh, Greg and Stewart's got Bibles in their hands. They can bring one with to you to follow along with us. Turn to, to uh, the Gospel of Luke chapter 19. We're going to be looking at verses 28 through 44. Obviously, today is Palm Sunday, and so we're going to look at uh, the story of Palm Sunday. I don't know about if you have guys, if you're here and you have your wife is down at the retreat. You know, when they go away like this, it always you realize how much you, you, you're used to them around. <laughs> it's like, okay, I guess I'm making cereal tonight for dinner. And uh, <laughs> so, anyways, I heard they're having a great time. The, Lisa told me that the, the speaker just was really just speaking to her heart from the Lord. And so it was just really good. So I'm glad that they're, they're being blessed down there. And so. Well, the time I study this morning is prepare to meet your Messiah. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, in this beautiful day, Lord. And we praise you for it. We praise you for this facility that you've given to us. We pray, Lord, that as we get into your word this morning, that your spirit, Lord, would uh, speak to our hearts in a way, Lord, that, that uh, Lord, that we would be open to your spirit speaking to our hearts, Lord, that we would... Uh, be listening to all that you have to say to us this morning. We thank you, Lord, for your word and how powerful it is to change our lives, Lord. And so we just uh, worship you. Thank you for this time. Continue to worship you through the study of your word. Father, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us that does not have a personal relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. They're not born again today. Lord, would you especially speak to their heart, Lord, that they might have the blinders off of their eyes and to see, Lord, how much you love them and their need to come to you, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, there are certain days that are more important than other days. In fact, there are days that we have around us that we, you know, are held accountable to remember them. One such of those days is coming up. It's when the government wants to make sure you remember April 15th. You know, they, they want to make sure you know that. Another such date that uh, you probably want to remember if you're married, you never want to forget your anniversary. I mean, that your life could be in danger if something like that happens. Mind you of a story I read about a Sunday school teacher that was speaking to her four and five-year-olds, and it was Palm Sunday. So she said, okay, kids, today's a very special day. Does anyone know what it is? Little girl raised her hand, four years old. She said, it is Palm Sunday. The teacher said, that is amazing. You're only four years old and you know that? Do you know the significance of Palm Sunday? The little girl confidently said, that is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. Very good, teacher said. Little girl continued on and said, but if he sees his shadow, he has to go back in for seven more weeks. Sometimes we can be a little confused about this day we call Palm Sunday. Actually, Luke 19 is a description of the final week of the life and the ministry of Jesus. And at this point in the life of the Lord, there is a sense among his disciples that something big was about to happen. In fact, what was about to happen would shock them and disappoint them. That's because they, they kind of, at this point, had a false concept of what Jesus had really come to do. They didn't realize that Jesus had come to this earth to willfully die upon a Roman cross. 
It wouldn't be until after his resurrection from the dead that they began to understand his ministry and his mission. That Jesus came to this earth the first time to die for the sins of the world. In his second coming, he will return to make all things right. Well, as the story opens, we're going to see three things if you're taking notes. Number one, the plan. Number two, the praise. And number three, the problem. Number one, the plan. Let's start reading Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 28 through 34. Luke writes, When he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass, when he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mountain called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter it you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went their way and found it just as he had said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, why are you loosing the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of him. So we read here that Jesus and his disciples are coming down from the Mount of Olives. He's got his disciples all around him. They're they're walking. Suddenly he stops. And he turns to two of his his disciples, we're not sure which two, and says, go into this village, and there's going to be this donkey. He's tied there. He's never been ridden before. And I want you to take it and bring it back to me. And, by the way, if the owner stops you and says, hey, what are you doing? Just tell him, hey, the Lord needs has needed it. I thought about that. Wouldn't that come really handy, you know, if you could do this with a new car? I mean, wouldn't that be cool? You're in the car lot and you're looking at this new car. No one has ridden in it before. And you just hop in the car and the dealer says to you, what are you doing? And you just say, well, the Lord has need of it. And the dealer says, okay, no problem. Here's the keys. Take it. It's yours. You have to admit it's an unusual story. But the Lord has a plan. The Lord always has a plan. It's just a matter of choice in our lives between letting God have his plan in our lives or we making our own plans. God's plans are good. Jeremiah 29, 11, we know that verse. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, it's interesting to me that the disciples, they didn't argue with Jesus' plan, nor did they question it. They just obeyed him. Now, you have to know by now the disciples have learned not to argue with Jesus, especially when he gives command that may, commands that may seem really like weird ones. I mean, if I were to say to you, okay, I want you to go downtown, and there's going to be a donkey tied to a light pole in downtown. Well, I need you to get it for me. You'd look at me and go, you're crazy. I'm not going down there. You might, just to see if there really was a donkey. But, but I mean, you'd question me. But the, here, this is the Lord and the disciples. They've learned, listen, don't question Jesus. Why? Well, you think about it. He had said some pretty unusual things in the past that ended up really blowing away the disciples' minds. Jesus said, you know, when Jesus said, hey, hey, launch your boat out into the deep. And and Peter goes, I've been fishing all night, didn't catch anything. Just do it. Jesus says, humor me, throw the nets over. And they caught all this fish. Whoa. Jesus said something and this happened. Or another occasion, Jesus tells Peter, go down to the sea and I want you to catch this fish. This fish, the first fish that you catch, open its mouth. And there you're going to find a coin that will be exactly enough money to pay for your taxes. Man, that would come in very handy this time of year as well. But it worked. It happened. So the disciples learned. They learned not to question the Lord. You know, when Jesus gives us these weird commands, man, just go with it. Listen, in the same way, if the Lord puts on your heart to invite your boss to Easter sunrise service at 6 a.m. in the morning, 
Don't think it's crazy. You may say, well, uh, I don't know. What if they say no? Listen, what if they say yes? I mean, who knows what the Lord has in store for them? I mean, think about it. What would have happened if, if when Jesus said to his disciples, go and get this donkey, and about halfway down, the guy said, you know what? I, I don't really, I don't like confrontation. Well, neither do I. So if we get there, and, and this guy is there, and he, what are you doing with the donkey? Uh, I don't know. Why don't we just go back, and, and we'll just kind of sneak it back behind the other disciples. Let's, let's, not, let's not do that. I, I mean, what would have happened if the disciples didn't move forward in obedience to the Lord? Well, there wouldn't have been a donkey there at the right time at the right place, would there? I mean, could you imagine that Jesus would go, you know, I guess I'm going to have to wait till next Passover. I'll be 34 instead of 33, and, and it's going to mess up all the prophecies about me. And, oh, I fulfilled 299, not 300, but hey, it's close. And I don't mean to be disrespectful or sacrilegious, but, but you can imagine the results of these two disciples are not obedient to the Lord. Now, obviously, God would have used someone else and so that his word would not return void because Scripture says, you know, that. But, but my point is these two would have missed out. They would have missed out of being part of fulfilling this huge prophecy that was written hundreds of years before fulfilling God's plan. Listen, Jesus was orchestrating all these events and all the events of his life in complete fulfillment of God's plan, of God's work. And they happened just as God said they would happen. Lord says, go get the donkey. And they did. And in verse 35, they brought him to Jesus and they threw their clothes on the colt and they set Jesus on him. Now, what was about to happen as Jesus would come riding into Jerusalem was a, this action of Jesus was a definite attention getter. This time as he entered Jerusalem, uh, on this, his, this his last time before his death and resurrection, he was making sure everybody knew something big was taking place. You see, Jesus' hour had now come. This is important to understand because for all practical purposes, Jesus, Jesus seemed to do a lot of things under the radar, so to speak. And by that I mean if he would heal a person, you know, he would touch a person and, and Jesus would, would say, hey, go show yourself to the priest, or uh, you know, but just don't make a big fuss about it. And the reason he would do that is because he would say, my hour had not yet come. What was the hour he was speaking of? Well, is the hour of his betrayal, the hour of his death and resurrection. Well, now the hour had come. So he is playing his hand, so to speak. He's letting the world at that time know that this has always been the plan. And it's going to be fulfilled. He's doing something that's going to force the authorities to react. Jesus coming in to Jerusalem, riding on the back of a donkey, would have had great symbolism attached to both the Romans and the Jews. The Romans, uh, you know, they understood that when someone came in like that on a donkey, it was coming back from a battle. They were a conquering hero. They would put that conquering hero on the back of a donkey and the people would cheer him and, and lay palm branches before him. So the Romans clearly knew that he was declaring he's a hero, he's a king. And for the Jews, he was play, plainly saying that he is the Messiah. Because for Jesus, uh, you know, he's just revealing God's plan as prophesied in Zechariah 9, verse 9, which says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just in having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the fowl of a donkey. That prophecy given 550 years prior to this event, to this event even happening. He's a promised Messiah, riding into Jerusalem, declaring himself to be, to be king. Not only Zechariah 9, verse 9, but we're also told in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, 
uh, where the Lord says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, and whom you delight below. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So Jesus was fulfilling the prophecy of Scripture. The plan set out long before this Palm Sunday day. The, the Lord would leave no doubt that, that he was coming in as a Messiah. Now something else we, we must not forget. Jesus was coming in as a wanted man. Because we read that the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where Jesus was, they should report it that they might seize him. So I don't know if there was posters all around town with Jesus' picture on. I'm sure there wasn't. But, but you can picture the idea. And so Jesus is saying, hey, you want me? Here I am. You come seize me. I'm ready. My hour has come. He knew he was a wanted man. He chose to publicize his arrival. Why? To show that he was not just going through all this as a hapless victim, but a victorious king with a plan to accomplish what was going to be accomplished. In fact, the triumphal entry can be traced all the way back to the book of Daniel. I have it up on the screen. Listen to Daniel chapter 9, verse 25 and 26. Daniel writes, Know therefore and understand that, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The streets shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, I know we've looked at this before, but again, it's worth going over. to know. We know for a fact that on March 14th, 445 B.C., King Artaxerxes gave the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. At that point, the stopwatch began to tick. We know that when it says there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, it's literally uh, 77s is what the word seven weeks describes. It describes, uh, weeks describes as years. It's weeks of years. Verse 25 there says that there shall be seven weeks, so seven times seven is 49 years, and 62 weeks, so that's 434 years. So add that up from the time King Xerxes gives the command to restore and build Jerusalem, 483 years later, the Messiah would come. And 483 years later, according to the lunar calendar, and what they used back then, this prophecy was fulfilled to a T, April 6, 32 A.D. To a T. And not only that, Daniel also prophesied that what, what would happen at the end of that 483rd year, he said that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself. And what happened? Jesus was cut off, but not for himself. He was cut off for the sins of the world, for the, for the sins of you and I. And as a result, we now know that there is one seven-year period still left to be fulfilled. When God will pour out his wrath on the Christ-rejecting world in what is called the Great Tribulation period. That will be the completion of, of Daniel chapter 9 and what's called the 70 weeks of Daniel. But again, the show said that Jesus was not a victim. That this was all planned out in, in history past. Here's the amazing thing. The longer you look at God's word and you go through it, I tell you, every time I find fulfilled prophecy, and there's so much of it in God's word, uh, just the accuracy and the reliability of it, it just blows me away. I mean, it's amazing. Now, let me say this. When it comes to prophecy, it's important as we read God's word that we don't read into it, but rather let it read out to you and to I. And here's why I bring this up. 
last Tuesday, I think we all heard of this horrific chemical weapons attack on innocent men, women, and children. I mean, it broke my heart to see these kids, these these children who, who suffocated horribly to death due to these chemical weapons. To quote President Trump, no child of God should ever suffer such horror. And I would say this, when I heard about our response on the attack on the Syrian air base, I said, man, it's about time we did something. But it made me think about God's word, God's prophetic word, knowing that God has got a plan even in this. We know that without reading in the scripture that in the last days the Middle East is going to be a hotbed of action. Even now we know that the battle lines are being drawn that would fulfill the plan of God to fulfill Ezekiel 38 and Ezekiel chapter 39. Also, Isaiah chapter 17, verse 1, the prophecy is given of the total destruction of the, the Syrian capital city of Damascus. Isaiah 17, 1, the burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city and it will be a ruinous heap. Uh, Damascus is, is the oldest city uh, to, this, to this day. It has not been fulfilled. I believe that the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 17 is just right around the corner. Either Syria itself is going to destroy itself, destroy its own capital of Damascus, or there's going to be some preemptive strike against Damascus, such as Thursday night's attack there as well. These are the only two things that I can see right now. Either they'll destroy themselves or they'll soon be destroyed. One thing for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us who is going to attack, just that it is going to happen. It's going to happen. You have God's word on it. Damascus will be a heap of ruins. It's prophecy. It's a part of God's plan for the last days. Obviously, the things that Isaiah said some 2,800 years ago are far more accurate than the newspapers of last week. And I'll say this. We have never seen the world in the condition it is right now. No one ever has. It's global. Everything we see is almost instantaneously. There's nations that are either rumoring about going to war or actively in war. Jesus said that would be a sign of the last days. We know it. We know in the book of Ezekiel chapter 38, it speaks of these nations that will join together to come and fight against and attack Israel, to destroy Israel. Russia's at the top of that list, as well as Libya is mentioned, Iran, which is Persia, Togomar, which is Turkey. What's interesting is Syria is not mentioned in Ezekiel 38. Could it be that the destruction of Isaiah 17 in the city of Damascus so devastates Syria that there's nothing left to fight with? We just don't know. What we do know is that right now, Russia is a major player in the Middle East, along with Persia, Iran, Gomer, the House of Togomar, which is Turkey. Russia right now, as we speak, is setting the stage in Libya and and, and in Sudan. I just read that, that Russian troops are in Libya and Sudan right now. Why? What's their plan? See, it's interesting that all the countries that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 to come against Israel are being manipulated by Russia right now. God made God. Never in history have we ever been to that point where Ezekiel is so relevant as it is today. The pieces of the puzzle are all seeming to fall into place. Now, I would never say that the Lord told me that this is what's going to happen tomorrow. I can say that right now. I could never say that. All I can do is open up my Bible, read what it says, and gather as much information as I can about what's going on around us and make the connections where the connections can be made. My point is this. Let the Bible speak for itself. It speaks loudly. It has plenty to say about God's plan and God's purposes. 
And we need to listen and we need to keep our eyes fixed upon the word of God and let the events that happen in the Middle East confirm what you already know that God says will happen in the last days. Jesus is coming back soon. And this we know when, when, when the Russian invasion wants to come down and, and attack Israel just as easily as one angel of the Lord killed 185,000 Assyrians to protect Jerusalem in 2 Kings 19.35. God is going to intervene and protect Israel and five-sixths of that invading army is going to be destroyed according to Ezekiel 39, verse 2. Listen, how God's plan is going to unfold, we don't know. We're not told. But we do know this. It will unfold. It's going to unfold. And so, just as Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey was in fulfillment of Jesus' first coming, so there are events that will show us that Jesus Christ's second coming is just around the corner. Let me say this, if you don't have your life right with Jesus Christ this morning, I would say you have no time to wait. Don't put it off any longer. Get your life right with Christ this morning because he's coming back and he's coming back soon. How do we know? God's word tells us. I love when talking about God's return to read Revelation 19, 11 through 16. I'll put it up on the screen. John writes, Now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus Christ came first as a suffering Savior. He's going to come again as a King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now this brings us to our second point, the praise. Look back now at verses 36 through 40 of Luke chapter 19. We read, and as he went, verse 36, many spread their clothes on the road. Then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees called him from the crowd, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So the people seeing him arrive in verse 38, they say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Over in another gospel, it tells us that they laid palm branches down in front of him and cried out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save now. So on the surface, this was a happy day. In many ways it was because the disciples' hearts were probably leaping for joy as masses were seeing what they had known all along, that Jesus uh, was the long-awaited Messiah. But there was great sadness in this day as well because this crying out of Hosanna was largely based in an ignorance of his role and what Jesus came to do the first time. Effectively, these people were saying, yes, save now, because they wanted God on their own terms. They wanted a a military Messiah that would accomplish their agenda to overthrow the Roman government there. But Jesus was coming as a suffering Savior to accomplish God's agenda. In the same way, there there are people today that that they want Jesus in their life as long as He will do what they want Him to do. As long as it fits in their agenda. 
You know, and if you preach a sermon on, on how to make your marriage a little bit stronger, you know, or on success, or how to make your teeth a little bit brighter and whiter, whatever, they like that. They like Christianity as a self-help philosophy. But when you talk about, you know, talk about sin, talk about Jesus that, that, that demands obedience, a Jesus that requires a change in one's life after they have encountered them, well, they're not so excited about that then. Many will sing praises of Jesus, uh, Jesus that will think will give us wealth and health and success and happiness. But man, those praises seem to stop when obedience and commitment is required. We want the, the appearance of religiosity as long as it doesn't require anything from me. And it, it's interesting to me that here these Pharisees, the ones who appeared to be religious, the ones who were supposed to know what was happening, but they were so caught up with religion and tradition that they missed the whole event. They knew tradition, but they didn't know the Word. So here is God in the flesh standing right before them, and these Pharisees have the gall to say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Basically what they were saying is, Shut the people up, because you're taking worship that only belongs to God, and you don't belong in that position, pal. Boy, were they wrong. But, but I love Jesus' response to them in verse 40. He says, I tell you, that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Boy, wouldn't that be something to see? That would be the ultimate rock concert right there and then. I mean, the rolling stones would have nothing on them. This would be the living stones crying out. Jesus said, listen, if the people stop crying out, the stones themselves would immediately cry out. Rock and roll. I mean, I love it. You know, Scripture often speaks of inanimate objects uh, in, in nature praising God. Psalm 96, 11, let the heavens rejoice and let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar in all its fullness in praise to God. Psalm 98, 7 and 8. Let the sea roar in all this fullness, the world and all those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands, let the hills be joyful together with the Lord, for He's coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the people with equity. Or Psalm fifty-five, twelve: For you shall go out with the joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth in the singing before you, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. I love that one. Psalm 90, 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. Apostle Paul even said, all creation groans in anticipation and longing for, for the day of redemption where they can break forth in praise. Do you realize that man is the only part of creation that is rebellious when it comes to worship? And the rocks are ready to cry out. The trees in Isaiah said they're ready to clap their hands. The mountains will break forth, forth and sing, but there are people who say, well, I don't really feel like worshiping today. Even though the Bible says the Lord inhabits the praises of His people. Even though the Bible tells us that everything that has breath praises the Lord. Oh, I'm too tired. I don't really feel like singing or some other excuse. Listen, we need to understand what a privilege it is for us that the Lord has given us the capacity to praise Him with our voices. Creation wants to and can't, and in this present time, people can, but many don't want to. And yet here is Jesus on the back of a donkey, and the people are praising him with palm branches and laying their coats down before him and shouting, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And if, if the people didn't pray, the rocks themselves would cry out. I love it. Now before we move on, I want to point out three ways in which these people were praising the Lord. Number one, they praised the Lord through sacrifice. 
Verse 36 says, And Jesus went, many spread their clothes on the road. Back then, you know, your, your clothes really meant something to you. I mean, most people only had one set of clothes. So to, to lay a part of the clothing down and to let a man on a donkey ride over that, it was really laying something down. So they praised the Lord through sacrifice. Number two, they praised the Lord through remembrance. Verse 37, the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Well, what did they see? Well, they saw Lazarus being raised from the dead. They remember Jesus giving sight to the blind. They remember Jesus healing the paralyzed man. And they were telling of these great things that God had done in their life. So they're praising God for all the mighty works they had seen. And the number three, they praised the Lord in anticipation. Again, they believed that Jesus had come to overthrow the Roman government and set up his kingdom right then and there. So they were praising God for Jesus setting up his kingdom. Now let me ask you, do we do the same three things? Do we praise God through our sacrifice? Maybe it's a, a sacrifice of giving. Lord, thank you that you're, you've allowed me to, to, to give, Lord, my time in helping out in the children's ministry. Or thank you, Lord, that you've, you've given me the ability to, to, to tithe in my offerings to you, Lord, to make this a sacrifice to you. Do we praise the Lord in remembrance for all he's done for us? Oh, Lord, thank you for my salvation. All of my sin has been forgiven because of your shed blood upon the cross some 2,000 years ago. And do we praise the Lord in anticipation? He is returning soon. That no matter how horrible this world gets, Jesus is coming back for us. Man, those are things to praise the Lord for. Now understand, the timing of all of this was Passover. There were thousands, perhaps millions of people there. They're making their way to Jerusalem to celebrate here. And they're, they're all praising Jesus and saying in verse 38, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Again, they're expecting Jesus to be the King who would bring peace on earth once and for all. They're expecting the kingdom of God to be established right there on earth, right then and there. But we know that the kingdom would be delayed. The Jewish authorities would officially refuse, reject Jesus Christ, and instead of a political peace, there would be conflict with the Jews ever since. And that brings us to our final point, number three, the problem. Look at verses 41 through 44. Now, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. The word for wept in verse 41 means to well out loud, to cry out loud. Why did Jesus weep? What was the problem? Two reasons. Number one, Jesus wept because the people were blind to the work that God wanted to do among them. They were blind to the work that God wanted to do among them. He says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. If you had known, you're blind, you don't see this. I wonder how many times that God weeps over our own blindness. You know, we're told in, in the Gospel of Matthew a little more about what Jesus said when he wept. In Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. it says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. In other words, if you only knew what I wanted to do for you, if you only knew what I was willing to do for you, if you were just willing, if you would just open up to it, if you would have known, even know, Jesus said, and then Jesus wept. 
Why? Because he knew. People were blind to the work that God wanted to do. Number two, Jesus wept because of what we briefly looked at already. Verse 44, there will come an army that will, he says, level you and your children within you to the ground and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Eighty seventy. that was literally fulfilled. The, 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 to the, the temple was destroyed. Not one stone was left upon each other. The few survivors were carried off to become victims of the Roman circus game, the gladiator contest. Jesus says, all because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus wept. He's crying out loud over the consequences that would come from Israel having rejecting him. He wept because he knew the persecution that would come their way. He wept because he knew that they would soon be scattered all over the world. That it would almost be 2,000 years later, May 14, 1948, before God would supernaturally bring them back into their land uh, once again. I mean, convulsing, sobbing, or the words of wailing are really appropriate when you look back at Israel's history and then look forward to their future because it's going to get worse for them before it gets better. We know that the Middle East is the stage set for the last days. And we know that Israel, Jerusalem, is the center. And we also know this. Whenever something happens in the Middle East, I think about this, the Persian Gulf War. You remember when we, we were dealing with, with that or, or, or with, Osam, uh, with uh, uh, Saddam Hussein. Thank you very much. Saddam Hussein. And we were there. What did, what did they do? They attacked Israel. They didn't attack us. They attacked Israel in the same way. And I'm thinking that in our involvement in Syria, we may see even more possible attacks against Israel just to get back at us. But you see, this again, this goes back to our first point. This is all a part of God's plan and purpose to save Israel, to save you, to save me. Clearly, throughout Scripture, the word spoke of this event, but the Jews failed to see it. The folks said that Jesus was coming to save now, but they failed to realize that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without the cross... There is no salvation. The same crowd that's shouting, save now, would soon be shouting, crucify him. See, Jesus didn't do what the crowd wanted him to do, so they forsook him. Many people, they've they've done the same thing. They they, they come to the Lord, you know, and and they expect Jesus to be this type of good luck charm, you know, expecting him to help them out financially or, or physically, and they get disappointed when things don't go their way. Listen, we need to realize that Jesus came to die for our sin and pay the price for our iniquity. If he never does anything else in this life presently, that was more than enough for us to be entitled to our, for him to be entitled to our loyalty, our affection, and our devotion. If he never does another thing for us, he never gives us another blessing, we owe him our life because what he did for us upon that cross at Calvary. And listen, right now we have got the opportunity to understand the word of God. And to understand the times in which we are living in and to recognize that Jesus' return could be at any moment, at any time. We have the opportunity as believers to get our walk right with the Lord and stop walking the fence. Clearly, Scripture speaks of the events in the end times and for us to ignore the word is the same as the Jewish people ignoring the clear statements of Jesus' first coming. Again, the problem with the Pharisees and those that were later on rejected were they, they didn't know the word. I mean, the Lord breaks in, if you only would have known the Scriptures, if you only knew the Word. You know, if you only know the Word, you know how much more headaches it would save us from? I mean, how much freer it would be? The longer I'm in God's Word, it, it really does help you. I mean, how many times you'd be 
be safe from being pulled in the wrong direction. Oh, the Word of God says this, so I better not do that. If you only knew the Word, how many times would you find the right answers at just the right time? So the Lord looks on in the path and He weeps. He looks at their hearts and He weeps over their ignorance. But He also looks ahead and sees the destruction of the temple where some 600,000 Jews would die and His heart breaks for that. The Jewish historian Josephus told us how rivers of blood flowed through the gates of the city. He described how the beloved temple was burned to the ground, dismantled stone by stone to get the melted gold out of there, thus fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus that not one stone would be left upon another. All of this broke the Lord's heart, and he wept. See, as we close, unbelief and rejection always breaks the heart of God. Just as faith and obedience always blesses God's heart. I mean, the same God who places the planets in orbit, the same God who made light shine out of darkness, is also the same God who's not going to forcibly enter the door of a human heart. He's going to knock. He's going to ask for you to open it. But He knows the repercussions that will come to those that reject His love and forgiveness. And that breaks His heart. Listen, God doesn't want to send any one of us to hell. We send ourselves there by rejecting what Jesus Christ has done for us. Yes, Jesus wept. But even after His weeping, he would accomplish what he came to do as ultimate work. And that blows my mind. I mean, here are these guys, they're, they're going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, you know, and, and, and he still is going to go and die for them. Despite his rejection, he would go to the cross and die for the sins of the people everywhere. Truly, there's no one like Jesus. No one else would weep compassionately for people he knew would only reject him and crucify him. Here's the thing. I, I love the Lord. Because he didn't give up on, on Jerusalem. He didn't give up on the Jews. He doesn't give up on you. He doesn't give up on me. And he's not going to. Whatever you may be struggling with this morning, whatever problems you may be facing, the Lord is right there. It doesn't take him by surprise. He's got a plan and he's got a purpose. And you just need to trust in him and know it's going to play out just as he has set out for you to do as long as you look to him for that plan to be fulfilled. And I encourage you to do that. And listen, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, if you don't know for sure that you're right with the Lord, I would encourage you not to leave this place this morning without making sure you're you're secure. I read this morning, and maybe you caught it, uh, Franklin Graham posted on, on Facebook that a Christian church in Egypt was bombed by Muslims as they were celebrating Palm Sunday. At least 21 Christians were killed, and as many as 60 more were injured. He said a second bomb went off at a different church, but the details were not given. Now we're going to be seeing this more and more the closer we get to the Lord's return. I think we need to pray for those families that are involved. But it made me think about, you know, being ready. Being ready to meet the Lord. Are we prepared to meet the Messiah? If not, I would encourage you, you know, don't leave here without making that commitment to the Lord. And here's the other thing. You know, I believe Jesus is returning soon, so we want to bring as many people as we can to heaven. So if the Lord is inviting you, I mean, people only come to, to church, you know, many times it's just Easter and Christmas. We got an opportunity to invite people to Easter service, so I would strongly encourage you to take that step of faith and go for it. Invite someone. Man, they just might say yes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the plan that you have for our lives, Lord. Plan for good, not of evil, to give us a future and a hope. And we can trust that, Lord, because we've looked to your word and we've seen how you have fulfilled scripture over and over again. 
Over 300 prophecies fulfilled to the day, to the T of your first coming, Lord. Not one was missed. Lord, we know that you're returning soon and not one of those prophecies are going to go missed either, Lord. You will fulfill every one. And we see them unfolding before our eyes. And Lord, it, it, it excites us, Lord. But it concerns us, Lord, because we know we have friends and family that don't know you. And so, Lord, we pray. We pray right now, Lord, for this coming week, Lord. We pray that there would be many salvations, that many eyes would be open to what you came to do upon this earth, Lord. That we would see, Lord, people that we know personally give their life to you. Lord, help us, Lord, through the power of your Holy Spirit. We need the power of your Spirit to invite those to come, to be that witness for you, to come and hear the gospel. Lord, that you might be glorified in all that's done. That's our desire, to bring you praise and honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So